I'm going to do my best today to weave a few threads together if I can. You heard the scripture reading this morning from Psalm 146. That is not an arbitrary chosen text today. It is the selected Psalter reading from today's Revised Common Lectionary. Again, the Revised Common Lectionary is a rotating diary of Bible readings. You have year A, year B, year C. We are currently, for your information, in year B. Year C will begin the first Sunday of Advent. The lectionary's intent, if you followed it daily, would be to essentially work your way through the entire Bible over three years with readings from the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, the Gospels, and the Epistles. Psalm 146 is the Psalter reading for the day. These words of hope, confidence, justice, liberation, especially for the downtrodden, the orphaned, the imprisoned, and the oppressed. Let's thread one. Thread two. Of course you know that today is Veterans Day. And if you are an active serviceman or woman or a veteran of the U.S. military or one of its auxiliaries, would you please stand? Thank you for your service. Today is unlike any other Veterans Day in the history of the world. You know why? Because today is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. On this day, a century ago, November 11th, 1918, an armistice was signed between the Allied forces and German forces at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, ending what had been, up to that point, the deadliest conflict in human history. The combined casualties, military and civilian, exceeded 20 million people. So, of course, the armistice and the eventual peace agreement were worth celebrating. Now, here in our country, we call this today Veterans Day, and we recognize the soldier. In Europe, it's known as Armistice Day. It's celebrated by Great Britain, much of Britain's former colonies, which includes Canada and Australia. It's also celebrated in France, Belgium, and several more countries. And there, the practice is to recognize the peace the tradition is to observe two minutes of silence around 11 o'clock. The first minute for the fallen. The second minute for the families, the survivors, and for the world left behind after war. That's thread two. And the last thread. That awful, tragic, mournful song you just heard. The Green Fields of France. It's a pessimistic song that will drive you to drinking. And why shouldn't it? It was written by a Scotsman. <laughs> who needs only the slightest excuse to be pessimistic and to start drinking. And once they start drinking, they just get more pessimistic. The writer is Eric Bogle. In the early 1970s, he and his wife went on holiday to France and while they were there, they toured the military cemeteries near Flanders, maybe the most famous burial site of soldiers in the world. 
And he sat down at the gravestone of an unknown young Irish soldier named Willie McBride. And in the silence of that cemetery composed the lyrics that you heard today. Flanders was the location of the famous no man's land and the site of the largest casualties of the First World War. Thousands upon thousands of young men are buried there from all over the world. And in one single day, Great Britain lost 60,000 soldiers in a single day. Growing among all the gravestones are the famous red poppies. They are a natural feature of those fields. They are now cultivated to be sure. And it's not unusual to see bouquets and boutonnieres of poppies being worn on Armistice Day and Veterans Day. And no one can speak of Flanders without invoking the famous poem written by Canadian field doctor John McRae, who served at Flanders and later died in World War I. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow. Between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, and saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though the poppies grow in Flanders Fields. Dr. McRae's poem is heroic. <coughs> Putting words in the mouths of the dead, he says, our time has passed, so now it's your turn. Press on. Of course, he would write this way because he was in the battle. He wrote as an eyewitness and as a participant. Eric Vogel's song is not nearly as optimistic. With decades of reflection between he and the fields of Flanders, he instead asks a series of haunting questions. Do all those who lie here know why they died? Did they believe what they were told, what they were fighting for? Did they believe that this war would end all wars? Because that was the conventional thinking of the time. The academics of Europe felt that this would be the last war, that it would be impossible to fight another one because there could not be a greater, farther-reaching conflict to ever erupt again. Let's fight this one and be done with it, they said. And they called this the Great War, not World War I, because they could not conceive that 30 years later another greater war would erupt. Meanwhile, idealists were preaching the advancement of society, humankind was headed to new heights through education and technology, communications, the purging of religious extremism, and the triumph of science, utopia would arrive. And in the pulpits of Europe and North America, preachers were preaching about the thousand-year reign of Christ, that this final war was in fact Armageddon, and the heavenly age would be ushered in. They were all wrong. That's easy to say and to see a century after the fact, but that fact still stands. Humanity was not progressing towards some self-made perfection. Science and technology would indeed revolutionize and improve our lives, but those same technologies would inflict the worst hardships and holocaust. Jesus did not, in fact, descend from the, to the Mount of Olives with His heavenly angels. And no, this was not the last war, the war to end all wars. There is always another war. It seems. 
For a century, we have formally and rightly honored, recognized, and remembered those who served in conflict. We have mourned, we have comforted, but since World War I began, we have also carried 650,000 American war-torn and flag-draped coffins to their final resting place. All while trying to care for more than a million young men and women who have been wounded. And no matter how you feel about war, if you are the biggest red, white, and blue hawk, or if you are a peacenik dove, when a society sends young men and women to bleed, while that society remains largely undisturbed and unbothered, then for God's sakes, that society ought to take the most meticulous care of those young men and women who come home bearing the physical wounds and emotional scars of their service. It is criminal for someone who has suffered for a society to be forgotten and marginalized by that society. And here the threads begin to come together. Are you still with me? It's always the young soldier who suffers. It's always the boy barely shaving who gets shot to hell. And now the young woman who could just as easily be a cheerleader at State College instead of wearing the uniform. Systems and forces much larger than these young men and women send them into battle. They are told, do this for your country. Do this for the cause. Do this to be a part of something bigger and better. And with beautiful, eager hearts they go. As in the words of Albert Einstein, it is the old men who start wars that the young men must fight. As FDR quipped, war is young men dying with old men talking. There will always be another war to fight so long as old men, politicians, bureaucrats, axe grinders, and moneyed interests send our best and brightest and youngest and bravest to the front lines. A place where they are unwilling to go themselves. Don't fault the soldier who by conscience feels compelled to serve. Pray for him or her. Support him or her. He or she is young. They are not parsing or discriminating geopolitical motivations. And when the fighting does break out, that soldier ends up fighting not so much for a cause or for a country or for a flag as much as he or she is fighting for the brothers and sisters in that same foxhole with him or her. He or she is fighting to get back home but don't think for a minute that the system which put that young boy or young girl in harm's way, that put him or her in that impossible situation is, in the first place is of the same pure and unimpeachable conscience. That gathers up two of the threads. War goes on so long as young people are sent to fight them. So long as systems of power and powerful people proclaim that we can kill our way out of our problems, war will go on. And that third thread... Psalm 146. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. This is the lectionary for today. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The parallel text is Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our hope for a peaceful future 
if we will have any joy, will come about when we put our trust in God and quit relying upon violence and killing, bombs and bullets and the powerful to provide us a false sense of security. Why do wars go on and on? Because we are insane. Insanity is what? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So let's try something else. Let's give heaven a chance. What happens then? Psalm 146 verses 7 through 9. He gives justice to the oppressed. Food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows. And He frustrates the plans of the wicked. So let me try to tie this knot together. What is the best way to honor a veteran or to remember the fallen? Thank them for what they have done, for sure. But go further than that. Be a part of building a society where fewer and fewer flag-draped coffins are necessary in the first place. By being a community where the wounded soldier is a rarity, an anomaly, not a routine occurrence. By raising a generation of men and women who will pursue harmony and work harder for peace than some have worked to wage war. It means greater equity in our world, promoting good relationships with our neighbors, diffusing the rampant rage that is consuming the 21st century, accepting and valuing people as who they are and what they are, the children of God. Working for positive peace looks a whole lot like Psalm 146. The characteristics of God's kingdom, a heavenly administration, it's not driven by fear, but by hope and joy. It's a community and society where the hungry are fed, prisoners are set free, sight is given to the blind, oppression is absent, burdens are lifted, orphans, widows, foreigners are cared for. This is a just society, what the Hebrews called shalom, what Dr. King and the Quakers call the beloved community. A just society becomes a more peaceful society. We stop trying to solve all of our problems with a gun or a missile. We open our eyes to the God-given awareness, recognizing that war making is not always right just because our country is involved in it. And we shouldn't stand idly by and allow the youngest and the best we have to be offered up on the altar of anything less than absolute and necessary defense. They shouldn't serve or die for oil for Wall Street, for someone else's financial gain, for imperial ambitions, or for imposing our will on others, or even our quote-unquote national interest, that broad umbrella that is used to sanction almost any action. Historically, Christianity has taken two approaches to war and violence. The first one, complete nonviolence. This was the view of the church for its first 400 years. It remains the view of the peace churches, Quakers, Anabaptists, Mennonites, and several others. And the other approach has been violence only as a last resort. All nonviolent options must be exhausted. 
And when legitimate self-defense is finally employed, it must be restrained as far as possible with the ultimate goal, not of punishing anyone, but of achieving peace. I would love nothing more than to get back to the first approach. To beat our swords into plowshares and to fight war no more. But in this trigger-happy, violence-ready, greedy world, I'll take the second one if we can get it. What could honor those who serve more than this? That we would protect those who protect us by sending them into harm's way only when it is just and only when all other options have been exhausted. Idealistic? Yeah. But I pray for it and I hope for that. I have one last story to tell you on this historic Veterans Day. I am remembering this devilishly handsome soldier that you see right here. And I'll tell you why he's so handsome. His name is William McBrayer. <laughs> he spelled his last name a little bit different than mine, but he is indeed a distant cousin. He was born just months before the Civil War broke out. His father was a white plantation-owning McBrayer from the Carolinas. His mother was a slave named Rose Black. Following the Civil War, his father sent him north to school. This father, who had once owned slaves, sent his illegitimate son to New York to protect him from the aftermath of Reconstruction in the South. Well, young William did what a lot of young men do when they go off to school. He flunked out. <laughs> or at least quit. He picked up odd jobs here and there, and with no real prospects, joined the Army at 25. He became one of the famed Buffalo Soldiers of the American frontier, so named by the Native tribes because these soldiers' dark skin and dark hair reminded them of the Buffalo. At 29, serving in the Arizona Territory, he earned the Congressional Medal of Honor for his coolness, bravery, and marksmanship under fire. He left the Army, but re-enlisted for the Spanish-American War and went to Cuba, where he earned a battlefield commission. When his unit was discharged, he re-enlisted again and was sent to the Philippines for five years. He was discharged. He re-enlisted again in 1905. By now, he was 44 years old. The Army tried to get rid of him by saying, we will not honor your commission. You're too old. And he, he joined anyway as a private. Finally, with arthritis so bad, he could no longer stay in the saddle. He retired. He married for the first and only time. And when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, guess what old Willie tried to do again? <laughs> At 56, he went down and tried to join. He decided instead to finish what he started. He went back to school. He graduated with his bachelor's degree from Tennessee A&I, which is now Tennessee State University in Nashville. He graduated in 1934 at the age of 73. He died just months before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941. He had lived eight decades, spanning the beginning of the Civil War to the beginning of World War II. And today... He is buried at Arlington Cemetery. This is all remarkable, and I knew none of this for the longest time. As 
some of the historians in my family were not keen on the fact that a black man had our name. To which my son Bryce said, wait till they meet me. (laughs) My son Bryce is our biracial child, our middle child. It was my pleasure to share all this information with him recently in the last year. You know, kids don't talk, and you don't talk on the telephone. You just text. So I was texting him all this stuff, and he was blown away by it all. He came back with his only response. My apologies for the language again, but he came back with the only response, and he said, Cuz was a badass. (laughs) I don't know about all that. Here's the most remarkable thing about this man. Tennessee State has a few of his essays that he wrote as an old man. Words of wisdom from a man who was always proud of his service, but who late in life was sometimes conflicted over what he had been asked to do, particularly as a black man sent to kill brown people. A man who had seen much war, but came to the conclusion that it should be a last resort and only for the sake of of justice, and nothing less than that. I'll be quiet and give give you his words. William McBrayer writing in the early 1940s. In the wilds of nature, the little birds have no police force, no national guard, no protection. They know nothing of justice, of courts of law, or jurisprudence. Out yonder in the briar patch, the rabbit has no army, no navy, no protection except for his fleetness of foot and his cunning. Throughout the great animal kingdom, we only have the rule of force, the consequences of which is bloodletting and suffering. Darwin called this the survival of the fittest. The German philosopher Nietzsche taught people to rely upon their hardness to rely only upon their strength. These men have succeeded in inoculating people with a barbaric spirit, which in moments of sober thinking should cause all of us to tremble for the future of civilization. For the chief distinction between civilization and brutality lies in one single word, justice. What is the nature of that human weakness that seeks justice for oneself, but denies it to others? What is it within us which causes us to accept cruelty with complacency among human beings? Why is justice glorified for one race as the supreme good, but denied to another? I cannot explain it. Justice is the lifeline of a nation Injustice, the cancer which slowly eats it away. Let us call the role of a few of the great empires of antiquity, Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome. All of these mighty nations perished on the rock of injustice. The world is littered with the remains of those dead empires which went likewise. Still in the hearts of men, there is the instinct to do what is right, which causes them to protect the weak, to provide for care of children and the aged, justice in the courts, justice between men, 
justice among the races, as well as the recent ambitious national program of justice socially. Justice is the heart blood of civilization. Lose this and the nation will die. Incredible words. Written all those years ago, but as pertinent today as the day my cousin wrote them down. The great tradition of remembrance is two minutes of silence. The first minute for those who have served. The second minute for those left behind and for the world which we pray to be at peace. Will there be peace? I give the last word to Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic. I am not an optimist, he said. Nor am I a pessimist. Because I am not sure how things will go. But I carry hope in my heart. And hope is as big a gift as life itself.